Thanks for listening to another episode of The Giving Leader. I am the host, Phil Ling. I'm also the founder of The Giving Church. You can go to thegivingchurch.com. That's who sponsors our podcast and see everything else that we do working with ministry leaders, church leaders around the United States. We've been doing it for years and years, hundreds and hundreds of churches and ministries uh, across the country and meet lots of interesting people doing that. I do want to brag for a minute. Since we've been all quarantined listening to podcasts, our podcast numbers, like everybody else, is way up too. And we have been staying on topic, primarily talking about reaction to preparing for dealing with the whole pandemic stuff and trying to give you helpful information, whether it be uh, PPP, getting your ministry and your church to qualify as a small business. Let's put this in perspective. And I want to brag on this for just a minute. When the first rollout came of this, uh, Tim Cooper, that works with us, did a lot of research and said, all right, there's going to be $349 or $49 billion given out to small businesses. Put it in numbers, 30 million small businesses, 1.5 million nonprofits, 360,000 churches all qualify. But it's a first come first serve basis. And we pushed early on, connect with your local banks, connect with the people in your, that you have relationships with. That's your best chance. We know from the folks, folks that we have talked to, that we've literally millions of dollars were, are, were taken advantage of, were able to get because they were on the early part of that. We also know others that piddled around and didn't. Now, I bring that up because there's another $300 billion package that's probably going to come rolling out. And it, the whole idea of this is a forgivable loan for small businesses of which ministries qualify, 501c3s qualify. And they have less than 500 employees that you can get some relief with payroll to keep people employed up through about June 20th. That's a whole piece of this. And about 94, 95% of that can be forgiven just by keeping those people that you're paid paying with this uh, quote unquote loan through that period of time. I only bring that up because a lot of you have listened to us. A lot of you have done it. We've got tons and tons of feedback and it has helped a lot of folks on that, that whole conversation almost a month ago, we did a podcast with Russ Finley. And let me give a little bit about Russ's bio because he's back with us today and I think you're gonna to want to be a part of this conversation. Uh, Russ, 30 years experience in the healthcare field, everything from running hospital, managed care organizations, even did a stint as the Medicaid commissioner for Kentucky. Uh, he's a fellow with the National Governors Association, Center for Healthcare Transformation. But here's the piece that jumps out when you read, read his bio and why I think so many of you downloaded that episode. In 2008, he was one of 75 folks that were selected to be part of a war games experience, medical war games, bio war games, that was sponsored by the Centers for Disease Control and the National Institute of Health. It was in DC. And the whole point of this, and listen, let me read this line because this, was, this is so apropos. The war game dealt with the recognition and response to a viral epidemic entering the United States. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like anything that we've experienced? That's exactly what it was. So when we interviewed Russ a month ago, we talked about his experience, the, the kind of the modeling that came out of that, the expectations. And of course, we still want to touch on that. But now a month later, we're a month into the quarantine. Now we have some states, federal, and reaching down through the governors and some states making decisions about when do we start to release some of these tensions and allow people to go back to work and some of those things. And I want to look at that with Russ through the, the background of what they were imagining might happen. 
because it's often you don't get to be in a room in a closed environment and experiment and say, okay, what if this happened? What if that happened? And let's model that out. And then a decade later, something similar happens. So that's, that's what I want to talk about. Russ is with us. Russ, how the heck are you? Well, I'm fine. I, you, you can tell I haven't been traveling much because I'm growing the beard <laughs> out. And, yeah. See, I, we need to be a, we need to be on TV or streaming this live. Well, I, I used to joke with people all the time that when I started doing working from home, I got up every morning and put on a suit and tie to try it, and then it gradually went from no tie, no jacket to now it's a pair of shorts and a and a polo shirt, and I'm perfectly comfortable working like this now. So yeah, I'm glad I, to be I, back. thank you. Well, thank you for being back. I, you know, we're doing this. Uh, we record all our podcasts via Zoom, so I get to see who I'm talking to, and Zoom's really set up well for podcasts. But I was reading somewhere there was a law professor that was doing his teaching now uh, via Zoom, and he starts really ragging on his people because of how slothful <laughs> they were. They were coming to the via, you know, the the technical room. Uh, yeah. Oh, when and, I do my work drama. calls, I have a black piece of electrical tape that goes over the camera <laughs> for that very reason. <laughs> uh, anyway, you, you don't have to dress up a lot. It's like a sportscaster on, you know, t- television. You just wear a shirt. Yeah. You know, you yeah. don't even have to. You got right. shorts on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, so here, here's you have the opportunity just to set the stage for those that listened to the podcast a month ago or didn't. Um, that in 2008, you're a relatively small group of people from different uh, backgrounds that were thrust into an environment to say the CDC's as part of their mandate. Hey, let's ex- we got to understand what there's used, used to be a quote I can't remember in the military where you prepare for the what the the enemy can do, not what they might do. Yeah, yeah. So you look at it and say, all right. If a, a virus comes in, if a whether it's willful or not, and I don't think I asked you this last month. When you guys were imagining this, was this something you thought someone would do as a bioweapon, or was it just an accident, a virus that we had not seen before? Well, you know, interestingly, um, we didn't look at it from the standpoint of, of how it developed, but there was a lot of discussion uh, during that, that, that week about um, – when you when you're thinking about this from a public policy standpoint, one of the things you have to do is you think about all the applications of what you're learning, and and you can look at at any one of those situations and say, you know, this would be apropos to our Medicaid department, our mental health department, public health. Uh, you know, is pub, our public health system, our public health departments have been overlooked. Okay, and and I, I'd like I want to touch on that in a minute, but our public health departments have been overlooked, but one of the things that we looked at was, you know, this has applications, whether it was, it could be bioterrorism or it could be, uh, in, in this case, you know, there's a lot of debate about how this virus came to be and how it got released. And I don't think we'll ever know the full story there, but I think there's a lot of light being shed on that now. But the preparedness that's required on a state by state level because of our, our federalist system is essential to how these this thing's being played out. But what we're finding is, is that there's been so little attention paid to the public health departments in each state that, you know, there's all different ways that we can apply this. It doesn't have to just be for the pandemic. It could have been for everything from, uh, you know, from uh, malaria to HIV. I mean, there's a lot of ways to apply the, the, the lessons 
we just didn't pay any attention to what we were learning. Okay, let me ask you what is probably the, all your friends on Facebook probably asked you this question early on. Um, when you when you were sitting in those rooms and making these assumptions and playing these out, and now you get to see what's happened in the last, say, five weeks with the United States, <laughs> is it similar to what you guys were imagining? Or is or have there been some real teaching moments like, wow, that's completely different? I think one of them, well, <laughs> we never talked about toilet paper. Uh, that, was, <laughs> that, that issue never, that never surfaced. Uh, but one of the things that we did talk about, and but briefly, was the uh, was the the mindset of people as they go through an experience like this, how people will respond, and actually it differs from generation to generation. And I think we've we've actually seen that play out in, in how you know I was talking to my my mother the other day, who's ninety four years old, lives in an assisted living center. And I asked her, I said, how are you holding up? And she said, I went through the Great Depression. This is nothing. Right? <laughs> uh, and then you talk to my children who are all Generation X, and they're like, this is killing me. You know, I can't stand this, this lack of, of social interaction and the, the, the freedom of movement and so forth. But what were a lot of the things that we saw there are exactly what you see playing out now. One of the things we didn't do, and I regret this, is we didn't really push the the discussion as much on uh, the economic fallout and, and what the economic, we talked about shutting down of, of the airlines, and, and actually we haven't even gone that far, uh, shutting down the airlines and shutting down businesses and you know social distancing and all those kinds of restrictions what happened was we didn't do it quickly enough in our war game. And that's what led to the, the devastation. But we, you know, one of the things that we didn't really pan out was how you, how you restart things once you close them. And, and, uh, I regret that we didn't go more into that level because the, as I was uh, explaining to, to Tim, there is that, that intersection of where, you know, the, the pandemic uh, and, and the things that are going on with the pandemic impact every other part of our lives. And you can't discount the other stuff because of the pandemic. One of the things that I, I think is really fascinating is uh, when, you, when you look at the, the restrictions that are being made and some of the actions that are being taken on a state-by-state -state level, you know, you, you can talk about what's happening in Kentucky as opposed to what's happening in Michigan and South Dakota and so the other places and see the difference in the approach and how, you know, as I, another Facebook post uh, is that I put out there was about, um, you know, there, there comes, you, you, there's, there's a benefit to having these restrictions, but there comes a point where you cross that constitutional line and, and, and it intercedes with the, uh, with the Bill of Rights. And that's where you have to kind of walk that, that very careful line. And we're struggling with that right now. I think nationally you're seeing a struggle with that. Yeah, I, I, this is a whole, could even be a whole rabbit trail, is uh, the understanding, A, of our Constitution and how we are set up. Yep. And that we, we are, yes, a democracy, but we're a republic. There's a difference and the state rights 
yes. that it's not when you say state rights, you automatically think of like busing in the 60s or the Civil War. But, you know, the state rights is and one of the pieces that we're watching is where you live and how you live there is going to be greatly impacted by things like this. So if you live in a very densely populated, high rise elevators, subways, mass transit, elbow to elbow, which is often a lot of the major cities in the world, not just like a New York city here, but Tokyo or, or, or Beijing or wherever that your experience is going to be a lot different than suburbia or rural or semi-rural or Midwest or in, in all these different pieces. So it isn't a one size fits all. I think the federal government is smart by saying, all right, governors need, you guys got to make some decisions here, guys and gals, on what's appropriate for you all as you slowly open this up. But here's the reason I want to go into this and, I, and the reason. When we do a podcast, one of the things I like to do is talk about interesting subject matter, but also give ideas and information for people that they could do something with. We have a lot of churches and ministry leaders, thousands, that, that listen to our podcast. And they are like the episode we talked about last week, the church in Ohio, what they're doing. They're doing some interesting things, ministering to people during this pandemic. Out of from this point forward, over the next four to six weeks, there are going to be some unique opportunities for churches and ministries to stand in the gap. Mm -hmm. Just as right now, uh, we pointed out a church that fed 3000 families last week. You know, so that's a stand in the gap. But one of them you just touched on is going to deal with mental health and because as these, these, these things cross, and nobody can see my hands. I'm holding my hands up. They're crossing. But as, you can, as these things cross, where we talk about the flattening of the curve with the pandemic, there are other curves like the economic. So right now, oil is so low that we went from the first time in 67 years, the United States was a net exporter of oil last year. And now with oil sell, selling for like $16 a barrel, which is just crazy, anything less than like 40, you can't even do it. Um, that is a, a section of the country that was doing wonderfully is now being decimated. Mm -hmm. And when you throw the into the background of this, the reason my friend Dave Ramsey makes uh, so much impact talking about what he does getting out of debt is because most people are in debt. Most people don't have rainy day funds. Most people don't have 30 day or six month emergency funds. And how quickly that can, can weigh not only on feeding you where you go to the food bank, which you've never been to before, but the, the mental pressure of that. Absolutely. And so, so my question is, when you guys were, were looking at this and, and modeling this out, and I think you touched on already, you didn't, how much thought goes into, we're going to have, on the crass side, we're going to have higher suicides. We're going to have more people that, you know, is it essential services right now? If I'm on Prozac and I can't get my prescriptions, I, you know, I'm going to, I don't know. I'm wondering about that. And when we look at the, the non-essential side of medicine, where everything's shut aside for the, the pandemic, so the hospitals are just waiting for that and really not doing a whole lot else-wise, well, how about the mental health part of the hospitals? Did you guys touch on that at all when you were oh, looking at it? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, when, the, when we did this study, it was after Hurricane Katrina, right? It, okay. was, it was just after Hurricane Katrina. And uh, the, the company that I was working for at the time, one of the reasons I was invited to participate was one of the companies I worked for at the time was one of the largest mental health providers in the country. And we happened to run the mental health system in New Orleans. So imagine after Katrina, when you take 
tens of thousands of people and herd them into the Superdome. And a good portion of them are on mental health medications and they don't have those anymore. And then, you know, you heard the reports of the violence and all the stuff. Well, that's why, you know, you, you, you can't, what we learned from that is that you can't overlook the mental health picture, mental health in this, in this country, let me get on my wagon here for a minute. Mental health has been overlooked as a, as a, a diagnosis for far, far too long. And what we've learned now is that there are, there are direct connections between the mental health uh, aspect and physical health. You know, if you have diabetes, it's a proven fact that about 60% of the people with diabetes also suffer from depression. Wow. So, if you, so if you're treating diabetes and you're not treating the underlying condition of depression, you're defeating the purpose because that depressed person's not going to do what they need to do. So what we we looked at that as part of this because we knew that social distancing would cause a lot of anxiety. We knew that there's, you know, we have a huge opioid epidemic in this country and, and not just opioids, but, uh, you know, here in, here in Kentucky, it's alcoholism is, is the leading cause of, of uh, death for, for people like that. So, you know, you have to take all those things into consideration. One of the things, and I want to touch on this real quick because you, you hit a key point. When you talk about flattening the curve, keep in mind that this is not going to be, you know, up a hill and then flat. Okay, you have to think of this this pandemic, at least for the foreseeable future, as more like uh, the teeth on a saw. Okay, we're going to have peaks and valleys for the foreseeable future as we open up the economy and you start to see peaks. There's going to be restrictions that come back again. And, and we're going to have to deal with that until we until there is a vaccine or we get the natural herd immunity and and people can start to build up some um, some resistance. But we're going to continue to see this up and down wave. And there's we're so much we don't know about this this uh, virus yet. I mean, we're still learning a lot about it. Uh, I was talking to a, an epidemiologist friend of mine last week talking about, you know, whether during the summertime, this thing's going to abate or not, or is it going to continue to go? And right now the evidence is it's just going to continue. But one of the key things and you talk with the, with the churches, uh, you, you know, giving out the meals. I, I, I alluded to this last time you and Tim and I talked about uh, an aspect of healthcare in the healthcare field now called social determinants of health. And it's, it's something that, States have talked about for years and years and years, but nobody's ever really invested in it because it's hard to it's hard to uh, determine what the return on investment is. Okay, and and states don't like to invest tax dollars into something unless they know a hard a hard return on it. But social determinants of health is basically recognizing the impact on on people's physical health from the lack of transportation, the lack of adequate food. So, you know, like programs like WIC and, and so forth, but uh, the lack of Wi-Fi. If you don't have Wi-Fi, which is a social determinant in those communications, you can't do telemedicine, right? Huh. Uh, so you've got that issue and you've got housing and talking about people's housing. So, you know, as churches become, and, and churches are a huge part of that whole social determinant of health aspect because that's where most all the all the government can do is set up the framework it's up to the ind, individual organizations out in the community to actually deliver that 
it's going to be key, absolutely key for somebody to stand in the gap and provide that social interaction with people as they go up and down this, this roller coaster. It's going to play havoc with people's mental health, particularly those, you know, whether they're elderly or, or you know, uh, have some kind of a chronic condition that keeps them from or they're terrified of going out. Somebody's got to stand in that gap and provide that that support, and that's what's going to be a key going forward. Yeah, here my uh, prognostication is a couple of things. We have a church outside of Atlanta that you know, long before this thing happened, they were really into recovery programs mm-hmm. and celebrate recovery, that kind of thing. And they had two, three hundred people in their their uh, celebrate recovery program. Um, that I think that whether it be recovering from drugs and alcohol, divorce, dealing with divorce, dealing with a a post-traumatic stress kind of a a mental health after this experience, um, churches that will recognize that, ministries that will recognize that and come up with ways to actually uh, help people in a a boots-on-the-ground kind of a way. Because it's not going, it's it is going to use those government terms. It's going to have to be the NGOs. It's not going to be a government exactly. program that that is funded any more than the government. The billions of dollars they throw into homelessness is not put, you know, helped eradicate homelessness. So the only way that happens is one person at a time. How are you actually getting to the underlying causes? What those issues are? And I think churches are the ones that are in the position, just like the one we talked about in Ohio that says, hey, you know what, we could do. Everybody that shows up, we could do three weeks of groceries, and they had 1,600 families the first time they did it. And a week later, another 1,600, next time 3,000. Just like that, it's like, okay, how many people in our our area are going to be dealing with the depression that comes because of the economy falling out from under them at no fault of their own, and then the inadequacy feeling of not being able to take care of their families? But at the, who, where do I go? Who do I turn to? Who do I, I, I get help from? Uh, I, I, that's the part that fascinates me. So when, I, when you all look at this, it's how do we survive the pandemic? How do we keep from having zillions of people just dead? But on the other side of it, how much attention did you give? Um, um, you're talking about on the social side of this? Well, once, once the, the curve flattens, then, then like, then what's the next three months look like? Even after her, uh, Katrina, see, I was, I was vice president of Billy Graham right after her, uh, Hurricane Katrina was down there with a bunch of pastors representing uh, Franklin Graham. And one of the things I found is that almost, it was like 70% of all senior pastors of all denominations left New Orleans within the first two years after Katrina. Yeah. Oh, uh, this is going to be, um, this is going to be an incredibly stressful time for everybody involved. One of the things I would I would love to see is is for the the churches and and I, doesn't matter of denomination at this point. <laughs> there needs to be a, a some type of an uh, an organizational effort. What the best model would be if if the churches would organize with like um, uh, you know, their comprehensive care centers or their you know some of the the, the mental health delivery systems. And, and put forward a framework so that they could go to, let, let, me, let, me, let me jump to another issue because this is, there's an underlying problem in all of this, okay? And I alluded to it a minute ago. With the public health systems, one of the problems we have from an infrastructure standpoint is if you look at how the, 
how the government functions. There are, you know, whether it's mental health or Medicaid or, or public health or, you know, an agency to provide care to children or whatever, they all have different information systems and they don't talk. Hmm. So when you talk about, you know, if, if you have somebody out there who has a mental health need, that information isn't shared with public health that in, and for HIPAA and other reasons. But the, the main reason is that, that all of these systems come together and there's no way to coalesce all this data to say, okay, I've got this individual out there. They are, they've got a chronic health condition. They can't get out. They're depressed. You know, they need food. They need this. They need that. And then connecting that with, with the right people that can provide that service there's there, first of all, there's not that that technological capability at the state level yet. The, the government has come out and said we're going to give five hundred billion dollars to the states to improve their 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 uh, information systems. I I hope this is one of the things that they focus on. But on the other end of it, you have to have the direct people who are providing the services to these people, whether it's it's the mental health professionals or it's the meals or the social interaction or whatever. I would love to see more of the churches just kind of coalesce their efforts together and then approach somebody, you know, whether it's the mental, the comprehensive care center or somebody, let's, let's move forward together and how we're going to deal with this issue. Pandemic aside, there's, you know, you, you can't solve that healthcare side of it, but you can, you can solve the social side of it, which we haven't really seen the the impact this is this is going to play itself out probably three to six months down the road because you're you know as the stress builds and and the economy's not going to recover uh, and this is a shock to a lot of people but the economy's probably not going to fully recover until 2023 right that's the part that people are going to struggle with is we're not going to see it's not going to be the same economy as what we have now so we played all this out we didn't take it as deep as I would have liked to. Uh, and this may be the, the topic of, for my PhD dissertation, but, <laughs> the, but it, would, it, would be, it would be a wonderful discussion to say, okay, let's figure out, first of all, how you do this in, in such a way that uh, uh, the, those economic needs and, and, the, and the mental health needs and all the social societal needs are met just as much as we pay as much attention to that as we are to the actual medical side of the pandemic, which, you know, we had to do because of this wave. But now that the wave is over, we're going to be left with what's left and it's going to be, it's going to be equally as difficult as what we're dealing with now. Well, and that's one of the points I just wanted to get out of this episode is to drive home to those that are listening. Cause it, we've had a lot of good response. And one of the pieces I said uh, because I deal a lot with money. I deal with funding ministries and the church or ministry that's going to survive. This is the one that is perceived to be adding value and helping touch lives. Not the one that asks the best, you know, that, that's got the, the craftiest letter that they sent or something, but it's, are you doing anything? So if you're feeding people, or if you're, we got a church that's, that's turning out a, a, a thousand masks a day where they pulled together the resources to do that, whatever that happens to be. But the mental health piece, I think, is going to be one of those next ways. And so just as the church has done, like Celebrate Recovery, a national program that's done amazing things, helping people overcome substance abuse. Well, how about those, the people that are going to be cratering 
uh, from a mental health perspective, don't know where to go. Local church, local ministry, face-to-face communication, reaching out, calling a number, and what kind of a, a programs you can put together for that. I think that is a wave that's going to come, just as you said, especially as the economy goes through its ebbs and flows to try to recover. Because if you're if you're broke or in debt or people are calling you with the bill collector, you can't feed your kids, then everything else is just exacerbated. But I can't get out of this episode without asking you this question. Uh, when you did the exercise right after Katrina, looking at a massive what would happen if something like this hit us, and when we talked a month ago, when this thing was still much newer on the national view for us to, to see, they were still talking on March 24th when we recorded that episode for, in the United States, at least 100 to 240,000 deaths. Now, a lot, a lot of folks have died. The flu in a regular year can be anywhere from 30 to 70,000. So uh, put that in perspective, you got 330 million people in this country. But are you surprised that we are beneath those numbers, not above those numbers? Uh, you know, the, the problem with those assumptions is if you're going to build a model like that, uh, most of the people who make those models, build those models, always look at a worst case scenario. Okay. You can, it's, it's always easier to come back to, you know, a better zone than it is to say, yeah, I predicted a hundred thousand. There's a half a million. Cause then you look like a, a, a complete idiot. So most of them look at a worst case scenario. I do think though that some of the policies that were put in place early on uh, mitigated a lot of, of and, and there's a lot of credit, I, I, you know, putting politics aside, you know, a lot of the efforts, a lot of the things that are being done on a statewide level have been very effective. And to their credit, you know, the American people have really, uh, have really risen to the challenge of, of how I deal with, you know, and, and social distancing. It, it's, it's become almost a, it's become almost a rallying point for people that, hey, you know, we got this and, and here's what we need to do. And, you know, and, and talking to your friends. And you know, I saw something the other day about how texting is now on the decline because people are actually calling each other just <laughs> to hear that you're hear somebody else's voice. Right. So, you know, I, I think that there's a, the, the models, um, I don't want to say the models were wrong. I think the models were right based on a certain set of assumptions. What we have to be careful of is though, we're, you know, the latest model I said was maybe 60,000 dead, which is a, a typical flu season. The difference is, is that the flu season ebbs, it goes away in the summer, comes back in the fall, you got a whole nother. This isn't going to happen. Uh, what we have to be careful of is getting complacent uh, after this initial wave goes through and we get into the flattening of the curve and things kind of settle down a little bit and we open up some of the economy and things start to move, we can't lose sight of the lessons we've learned in terms of, you know, they're, they're, I, football season and things like that. I have no idea how that's going to play out. And I saw something the other day that said that even if they open it up, a lot of people said they won't go to a game anymore because right. of, the, of, the, of the, you know, the crowded conditions. So, and, and it's, we're going to have to watch that because from a psychological standpoint, as hard as this first wave has been, imagine when you get through this first wave, things settle down and we kind of get back to semi-normalcy semi and then it hits again. And you see the spike 
and here come all the restrictions again. That's when people are going to have the hardest time mentally because you, you, it's almost like PTSD. You know, you just get to it and you're just on this constant roller coaster of emotions and, and that's when it's going to be tough. And that's what we have to prepare for. Russ Finley has been my guest. We had him on last month. You downloaded it like crazy and listened and talking about his experience working with the CDC just after Katrina, looking at these modelings of what if a pandemic hit us? What if something like this happened? And that's why I wanted to grab him and bring him back on now that we're at this particular stage. I do think it's an opportunity for ministries to stand in the gap, but you have to be intelligent, gather information so you can anticipate what kind of gaps you need to stand in. Feeding people is great. But the mental health part of this, which the church and the ministry should be best equipped to stand in the gap for, are going to have to be reimagined. And I don't, I don't even know what that is. That's a future episode. Russ, you're a good man. Uh, you are. I appreciate you hanging out with us. Oh, you're more than welcome. I enjoy it. Thank you. This has been uh, the Giving Leader Podcast. Share it with your friends. I'm Phil Ling, the host. I'm also the founder of The Giving Church. You can go to thegivingchurch.com, find out more information about what we do, our podcast, all that kind of, all that stuff. But until the next time, thank you very much.